Welcome to the Most Accurate Podcast presented by 444.com. I'm your host, my name is Greg Smith, and you're flying solo with me this week as I recap the fantasy football action from Week 7 and look ahead to the Week 8 waiver wire. I definitely prefer to have guests when I can, and I'm lining up some great ones for the weeks to come, but the scheduling just didn't happen to work out this week, so you're stuck with me and me alone. If you have feedback for me on the format of this episode or any of the other aspects of the TMAP experience, please hit me up on Twitter at GregSauce or try to leave a constructive review for the show on iTunes. This past week was a wet one for a lot of NFL teams, and the fantasy results were less than ideal for a lot of the players that we were counting on, so I thought it was only fitting to use the beta band song Dry the Rain as the music on today's show. The track is from their 1998 album titled The Three EPs, and if it seems vaguely familiar to you, you might have heard it in High Fidelity, the 2000 movie with John Cusack. Uh, If you want to hear the song in full, click the link in the show notes to the TMAP B-Sides playlist on Spotify. Dry the Rain's on there. All the other songs I use are on there. This episode is sponsored by Fantasy Draft, and the best part about playing DFS at FantasyDraft.com is that it's rake-free. That's right. 100% of entry fees at Fantasy Draft are paid out to contest winners. If you want to try it out for a free 7-day trial, go to FantasyDraft.com, sign up with the promo code 444, just like it's spelled in our website address. That's the number 4, F-O-R, the number 4, and say goodbye to the rake. With that all out of the way, let's get into the Week 7 recap, and big picture, what stood out to me most in Week 7? Aside from the soggy field conditions that I kind of noted earlier, the bad weather that we saw in a few different games and how that impacted fantasy players, the defining thing for me in Week 7 were all of the fill-ins that we had to make. And because of bye weeks, because of injuries, we were left with a lot of situations where players were dropped reluctantly. There were a lot of drops that I personally had to make, drops that I saw other people make of players that probably shouldn't have been dropped necessarily, all things being equal, but based upon the circumstances of week seven, those bye weeks, those injuries, we had to make some moves. And this, to me, serves as a really important reminder to make sure that you're auditing the drops in your league. Look at the transaction pages for your league. Don't just look at the available players because you never know if you're sorting by the right types of criteria. Uh, a lot of times you can look up players based upon you know most added or the most fantasy points you know, up to this point in the season, or maybe the most projected points for the upcoming week. And that might lead you to miss some players that were dropped by other teams who, you know, maybe because they've been underperforming is why they were dropped. But based upon trying to project forward, uh, based upon expectation of a bounce back for certain types of players, maybe they shouldn't have been dropped, but maybe the circumstances forced their owners to do so. For example, in one of my two quarterback leagues, I saw Dwayne Haskins get dropped for Jason Witten. And I don't have super high expectations for Haskins over the balance of the season, but in a two-quarterback league, he probably should be owned because sooner or later, he's going to be starting for Washington. Uh, But that owner happened to need Jason Witten as a bi-week fill-in at tight end and had enough depth at quarterback to cut Haskins, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Haskins should be unowned. It's possible that somebody else in the league who needs quarterback help should be looking to add him this week. In a different league, I saw Marvin Jones get dropped this week. I saw Josh Gordon get dropped this week. And this is a league that has admittedly shallow benches, which makes sense why people might be moving off of those wide receivers. You know, Gordon's hurt. Marvin Jones hadn't been doing a whole lot prior to his blow up in week seven, but those guys are now available. Uh, And they will show up, you know, on most added, you know, most projected points going forward because they have that higher profile. But it is a good idea just to monitor those drops made by other teams in your league and maybe drops that you've made yourself. 
to figure out, hey, should I course correct and get back onto this player, even though, you know, leading into week seven, I thought they weren't worth owning. Another thing that stood out to me in week seven was the discrepancy between underdogs and favorites, you know, the splits between who was winning those matchups, and only five underdogs so far this week managed to beat the spread, and only three of those underdogs won outright. Now, this is circumstantial as well in in terms of, you know, the matchups that we happen to see in week seven, but I do think there is an indication here that the NFL is morphing into different tiers of teams, right? You have some have-nots, you have some haves, and when the stars align, when those teams match up against each other in a certain way, you're going to have games that are a little easier to predict the outcome, a little easier to predict game flow, and that is valuable to us in fantasy. If we can understand how a game is likely to play out, then we can more easily project volume for the players in those contests. And along the same lines, we are kind of seeing the death of home field advantage this season. I brought this up in my rankings article over at 2QBs this week, but I took a lot of road teams against the spread in my picks. And it was just because I looked at those road teams and they were clearly the better teams in those matchups than the teams they were facing at home. And again, it's more about those individual matchups. But at the same time, when the matchups dictate it, we can kind of ignore that premise of home field advantage. The good teams are going to win on the road if they're good enough, especially against bad opponents. So again, roll this all back together, and it seems like this season we're getting a pretty clear picture about which teams are good. You know, Kansas City, when Patrick Mahomes plays. The Rams are still a good team and much better than the Falcons, which is why that game was such a blowout. We know that Miami is going to lose all the time, but we also know that Buffalo is not necessarily a world beater. They gave up 21 points to the Dolphins. Minnesota, clearly better than Detroit, even though they are on the road. Green Bay and Oakland, another good example. It's not going to be this easy every week, of course, but this is something that we need to pay attention to because when the stars align, as I said, that's when you're really going to be able to find actionable avenues to take in fantasy. In weeks past, I would normally jump into injuries at this point, but I'm going to flip the script a little bit. I'm going to talk booms and busts of the week before we get to injuries, mostly because injuries are so directly tied to a lot of the waiver ideas that we're going to talk about in the second half of the show. Uh, so let's kick things off with the boom of the week. Normally, I'm looking for players on my teams or you know the guest teams to specifically use as examples, but I didn't own Marvin Jones anywhere. I kind of touched on him earlier as a player. I even saw a drop this week, but man, what a great game from him. Four touchdowns. I think we need to be a little wary of this performance, one, just because it seems like such an outlier at face value, but also because Kerryon Johnson got hurt in that game. They were playing catch-up the whole time, you know, against worse teams, teams where they might be able to run the ball more. Uh, Marvin Jones is probably going to come back down to earth a little bit. This is obviously a sell-high moment for him, but when it comes to buying low, selling high, I feel like those are such simple ideas now that most fantasy owners understand. The fantasy community in general has become really good at projecting value forward, and with that in mind, no one's going to take this recent performance from Marvin Jones and assume that this is the baseline for him every week moving forward. That's just not going to happen. That's not how people think about fantasy anymore. We're all smarter than that. But at the same time, there was a confluence of factors in this particular game that really helped Marvin Jones bust out. So temper your expectations going forward, but... If Kerryon Johnson does line up to miss a lot more time, there could be a bit of an uptick in value for Jones and the entire Detroit passing game in general. As far as which players on my teams made the biggest unexpected impact, like my booms of the week, uh, Dallas Goddard, I picked him up in one league because I was desperate for tight ends. I'm streaming the position there, and he came through. It really seems like he's the number three receiver on that team right now behind Alshon Jeffrey and Zach Ertz. D.D. Westbrook was a pleasant surprise for me this week. 
I really liked the matchup heading into Cincinnati. He was a game-time decision, quote-unquote, coming into that matchup. But generally, if a player is a game-time decision and he gets cleared to play, I'm going to be okay starting that player. Now, you can flip the script on this and say, look at David Johnson, look what happened there. Game-time decision was active and killed us. They absolutely killed us in fantasy. But the process to play David Johnson there was correct. The process to play D.D. Westbrook going against the Bengals banged-up secondary, that was correct. And he delivered on that. David Johnson didn't. That's fantasy football. The, the variance is always going to be there. Uh, one other boom of the week that I did not see coming in, and a guy I didn't really have rostered anywhere, was Latavius Murray. Really busted out against the Bears defense. And, I mean, what happened to the Bears defense? They were supposed to be good. I was scared off of the Saints after Alvin Kamara was ruled out. I figured they'd be able to focus their defensive attention on Michael Thomas and on Latavius Murray. Teddy Bridgewater isn't a world beater. Going up against a tough defense on the road, I just expected the Saints to maybe, you know, stay in the game, but I didn't expect a blowout, and that's exactly what happened. Latavius Murray was the primary beneficiary of that. He had a huge week, and it looks like you can start him with confidence as long as Alvin Kamara is out. Now, once Kamara comes back, Murray is a little sketchier. We don't know the exact extent of Alvin Kamara's injury at this point. I'm sure we'll get more information as the practice reports come out here leading into week eight, but... This is a situation where Latavius Murray might be a legitimate sell high because he is coming off that huge game because there is this question about whether or not Kamara is fully healthy. If people expect Kamara to be out a long time, they might be willing to pay top dollar for Latavius Murray. Now, when I look at some players on my benches that you know had big performances, you know booms of the week that I wasn't able to take advantage of, uh, the first has to be Ryan Tannehill for me. I picked him up in a couple two quarterback formats and. I had reasonable expectations for him. I ranked him higher than most people over at Fantasy Pros because the Chargers are a pretty easy matchup right now. But with that in mind, I think that we can't read too much into this one week from Tannehill. We know that Tannehill is not you know, an exceptional quarterback. It clearly appears that he is a better option for Tennessee than Marcus Mariota right now. I would expect him to be the locked-in starter going forward. Uh, Tannehill, that is. And we have to be optimistic because it seems like he might have unlocked the other offensive weapons for Tennessee to some extent. And that's a very good thing. You know, if A.J. Brown can get going, if Corey Davis can get going, if the tight ends there in Tennessee can get going, not only is that good for Tannehill, is that good for those players, it's also good for Derrick Henry in the running game. You know, if, they, if opposing teams have to respect the pass a little bit more, maybe that opens up more running lanes for Henry to get going. I think Tannehill's introduction into this Tennessee offense is generally a good thing, but we need to take this one performance against the Chargers with a grain of salt. I don't feel bad for leaving him on my bench in those two quarterback formats because most of where I had him rostered was as a clear backup, as a clear bye week fill-in. Uh, but with that said, when those bye weeks roll around, I'm going to be pretty comfortable plugging Tannehill in. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about what we saw there from the Titans. I mentioned Latavius Murray as a boom uh, just in general. Uh, Teddy Bridgewater, uh, again, considering the matchup against the Bears, Bridgewater way overperformed my expectations. Uh, he was really good. He's looking like that good type of game manager, the guy who, because he's in a good offensive structure, because he has good coaching and good weapons, is going to be able to succeed even when the matchups are relatively difficult. With that said, Drew Brees is probably going to come back within the next you know two, three, four weeks, something like that. Uh, so if you're in a two-quarterback format, you want to try to get something for Bridgewater now. If you have the quarterback depth to deal him, that's a good idea. Give it some thought. Maybe try to make a trade happen. A couple other booms on my bench. Danny Amendola, eight catches for 105 yards. Game script here was a factor. Carry on Johnson's injury was a factor. I'm not reading too much into this. We saw Amendola blow up in week one and then totally fall off the face of the earth for the next few weeks. This is the type of player he is, a guy who you don't mind having in best ball, especially if it's PPR, but in a seasonal league, he's not trustworthy. You can't 
actively use him unless you're in a very, very deep format. And of course, the final boom of the week, who was on a number of my benches, I'm probably burying the lead here in this podcast, the biggest story of Week 7, Chase Edmonds, four touchdowns for the Cardinals. I touched on David Johnson not really playing at all in that contest, but Edmonds looked really good. In general, this Cardinals offense looks really good. I'm getting really excited for all the teams where I invested in Kyler Murray, where I invested in Christian Kirk, Larry Fitzgerald. Now, Kirk is injured. Murray and Fitzgerald didn't have great games this past week because the Cardinals could just do whatever they wanted on the ground against the Giants. But what we're seeing here in Arizona is a team and an offense that is well-coached. They're figuring out ways to win games. They're figuring out ways to put up points. And it's not always going to result in rushing slash passing touchdowns. Like that's going to be a mixed bag every week, just like it is with every other team. But I think you can count on this offense as one to be invested in in fantasy. And from a gambling perspective, if you're looking for a team that is just built to cover spreads, Arizona is right there. Like their offense can move the ball. They're going to be perpetually disrespected this season, probably because their defense hasn't been very good. And they just got Patrick Peterson back. So we'll have to keep an eye on whether or not an adjustment is made you know, to these lines based upon the way they've been playing, based upon that Patrick Peterson return. But I'm looking forward to see if they can keep this up going forward. I'm, I'm thinking they can't. Let's get into Bust of the Week next. And from my teams, let's just keep the Arizona train rolling here. Kyler Murray, David Johnson. Uh, I started both in multiple places. Kyler Murray, again, just a game script thing. I don't feel bad about that. I'm not worried about him going forward. I think there's room for optimism with this offense. David Johnson, though, they're blaming his inactivity in that game against the Giants on the field conditions, on the weather. So maybe we see him bounce back next week. I think you have to keep an eye on the practice reports for David Johnson heading into Week 8. Maybe he can get back on the field when the Cardinals are in the Superdome next week. But because he's dealing with this nagging injury, because Chase Edmonds is playing really, really well, because the offense is clicking, I don't think the Cardinals are incentivized to make David Johnson that heavy, heavy workhorse that we may have wanted him to be at the top of the year. And that is concerning going forward. My other big bust of this week, Dante Pettis. I mean, what can I say? My frustration with this 49ers receiving game is growing every week. Last week on this podcast, I said I'd be willing to drop all of them, and that's still the case now. But then during the week when Debo Samuel was ruled out, I kind of brought Pettis back into consideration based upon that upward trending usage we had seen over the previous two weeks. Like we saw a snapshot go up each of those weeks. We saw him start to get more targets. And looking at this matchup against Washington, it seemed like the perfect spot to roll Pettis out there. Precisely because Debo Samuel wasn't playing, we thought the targets would be there. It turns out the Niners defense was all they really needed to beat Washington. They didn't have to really pass at all. They only won the game 9-0. to And I... Think my initial read last week on the show that the 49ers wide receivers aren't worth owning has to be, you know, the status quo going forward. I think it's fair to keep fading Dante Pettis at this point, but I do have this worry in the back of my mind that I'm just being a slave to recency bias and that eventually Pettis is going to bounce back if the usage is there, if the matchups are right. Like maybe we should have looked at this Washington matchup and said the Niners aren't going to need to do much on offense to win. Kyle Shanahan is often a conservative coach when it comes to those types of matchups. Wants to get the running game going. Doesn't necessarily care if he wins by blowing people out with the passing game. Should we fade Dante Pettis this week, but maybe not in future weeks? So as I'm looking at the Niners' upcoming schedule, we have Carolina in Week 8. Carolina can move the ball. We're probably going to have to see the Niners pass a bit more in that contest. And then San Francisco is at Arizona in Week 9. That's another one that should be up-tempo on both sides. I just don't know how you can trust Dante Pettis to be that guy because every time you think he's about to turn the corner and become this higher usage 
easy-to-count-on player, he gives us a week seven. No catches, just a complete dud. It's all going to be a matter of risk tolerance going forward with whether or not you can afford to play someone like Pettis, someone like Marquise Goodwin, someone like Debo Samuel when he comes back. But really, when it comes to the Snyder's offense, you want the running backs who are healthy. You want Tevin Coleman. You want Matt Breda if he's playing. And you want George Kittle. And that's about it. Like even Garoppolo, uh, we'll talk more about him a little bit later in the show. I'm terrified to use Garoppolo in any given week because he just hasn't been that good for fantasy purposes, despite the fact that the Niners are 6-0. Now, if we want to look at week seven and some bust performances that might lead to buy low opportunities, the first player I want to bring up here is Keenan Allen. This makes four lackluster weeks in a row for him, but we know the talent is there, and we've seen him give this roller coaster routine in past seasons. Uh, despite the fact that he is kind of known as this PPR monster, he is up and down a lot, and this could just be a little valley that we're sitting in right now. I don't love Allen's Week 8 matchup at Chicago or even the Week 9 matchup against Green Bay. But after that, he gets Oakland, Kansas City, Denver, Jacksonville uh, in the next few weeks. So based upon his talent, based upon you know historical baselines for Keenan Allen, I think that he is a general buy low here because he's been bad for a while and the owner might be getting fed up with him. Another player I might be looking to throw out some buy low offers on is Marlon Mack. His last four games include two duds and a bye week, so... I think it's okay to check to see if Max Owner is getting fed up. If we look ahead on the Colts schedule, we're going to see some easier matchups on the way, especially compared to the top 12 Houston rushing defense that he just faced in Week 7. Mark Andrews is another candidate here. He, you probably won't be able to buy all that low just because tight end is so thin, and if people have a relatively proven guy like Andrews, they're not going to give that guy away for nothing. But he did have a mediocre Week 7, despite being the clear target leader for Baltimore. Again, this really is going to come down to how sharp your league mates are. And because fantasy owners are much sharper in general these days, people are going to look at that target share that Mark Andrew has over you know the past however many weeks, and they're probably going to tell you to you know go sit and spin. But you never know. Based upon the type of commodity he was in fantasy drafts, it's realistic for other owners to maybe have Mark Andrews plus another usable tight end. Maybe they have Andrews and Darren Waller, or Andrews plus Austin Hooper. That sort of tight end pairing, that sort of tight end depth might allow you to get a bit of a buy low on Andrews because he's coming off a down game. And speaking of the Ravens, speaking of buying low, I want to I turn things around a bit here and give some props to Jim Saunis for his call on last week's show to sell high on Mark Ingram. We had a pretty spirited discussion about what sort of value Ingram has based upon you know, his lack of receiving chops, but his locked in role as the goal line guy for Baltimore you know, round one uh, of this battle goes to Jim because Ingram did not do all that much on Sunday against the Seahawks. Lamar Jackson actually led the Ravens in rush attempts on Sunday. So this does seem like maybe you still have a small window to sell Ingram if you want. He did lead running backs there in carries. He is the goal line back. If you can prop him up based upon those things and get something back in return for Ingram, this might be a good idea to do it. So uh, once again, shout out to Jim for that call from last week. That was a good one. Let's get into the key injuries from Week 7, and we're going to start at the quarterback position with Patrick Mahomes, injured his knee. This is still one of the best offensive schemes in the NFL with Kansas City, so I'm not going to downgrade their top playmakers too much. You know, Tyree Kill, Travis Kelsey, LaShawn McCoy as the lead runner there, but all the other pieces in Kansas City are going to be pretty shaky fantasy plays with Matt Moore under center. I've got my fingers crossed, hoping for Patrick Mahomes to, re to return sooner rather than later. You know, the NFL is better when he's playing. But this does have to impact the way we evaluate that team in fantasy. 
Uh, the other big quarterback injury from Week 7, Matt Ryan hurt his ankle, or you know, it's being reported as a leg injury some places. Something's going on with Matt Ryan. The early reports are that it is presumed to not be too serious. Now, does that mean that he'll be back in Week 8? I don't think so. I, the way he was limping coming out of that game, I imagine they'll probably give him a game off at least and let Matt Schaub take over. Schaub only really played one real drive in relief of Matt Ryan. He had one target for Julio Jones in that drive, two targets for Justin Hardy, and then three targets for Austin Hooper, one of which resulted in Schaub's only touchdown pass. So on the positive side, we're seeing Schaub generally know what he's doing. He's getting the ball to the key playmakers there in Jones and Hooper, but that's not to say that Schaub can support a highly productive fantasy offense the same way that Matt Ryan did. And there are so many other problems with the Falcons right now that throwing Matt Schaub into the mix just seems like an overall downgrade for this team. I think that Julio Jones should still get a solid helping of targets just out of respect or obligation to his talent. But those targets are going to be lower efficiency targets with Schaub delivering the passes. Jones and Hooper are probably the only Falcons I would use with any confidence going forward, but I do think some spike weeks could pop up for tertiary guys, even if Schaub remains the starter. I just don't think you should chase those boomer bust type outcomes in seasonal leagues. Like, save your dart throws with Calvin Ridley, Muhammad Sanu, or, I mean, you know, Black Justin Hardy for daily fantasy. That's the, the space where you can consider using those types of players in tournaments where you're going to get low ownership because Schaub is the quarterback. Other key injuries, David Johnson. I mean, we knew that he was you know, slightly dinged up going into that game, got a carry to start the contest, and then we never saw him again. The weather, the soggy field conditions are being tied to his lack of usage, so hopefully he'll be ready to go. Uh, just keep an eye on those practice reports, as I said earlier. Uh, on Johnson, I touched on this earlier as well, uh, hurt his knee against the Vikings. Ty Johnson was the early down replacement, and while Johnson does have some receiving chops of his own, J.D. McKissick seems to have a hold on the satellite back roll there in Detroit, so I don't think it's really great for either of those running backs. I think the, the big upgrade here is for Matthew Stafford and for Detroit's pass catchers, you know, Kenny Galladay, Marvin Jones, T.J. Hawkinson. They're probably just going to throw more now that on Johnson is hurt. Adam Thielen injured his hamstring on the other side of that contest. So, I mean, if you bought low on Stephon Diggs a couple weeks ago, good for you. Uh, Ola B.C. Johnson is the next man up at wide receiver for the Vikings. But I think more importantly, this is going to give us some signs of life for Minnesota's tight ends. We saw Kyle Rudolph and Irv Smith Jr. both get five targets in that game. And it was a game that Minnesota, for the most part, was winning pretty handily, even though the score was kind of close at times. So it's good to see that even in a solid game script that Kirk Cousins is ramping up the passing volume that the tight ends are getting involved. Now, with that said, if Thielen comes back, I'm not going to trust the tight ends whatsoever. But while he's out, I think Kyle Rudolph, I think Irv Smith deserves some consideration if you're looking to stream a tight end. Uh, Will Fuller injured his hamstring. New season, same story there. We'll talk more about the pickups in the Houston offense uh, during the waiver portion shortly. Uh, Delaney Walker injured his ankle, and he was questionable entering the game, so it's not a good sign that he couldn't finish this particular contest. I'm going to have more on his replacement and the rest of the Tennessee offense later in the waiver portion, uh, so hang tight for that. Uh, Ito Smith suffered some sort of head injury. Uh, it was thought to be a concussion. Now it's being reported as just a stinger, quote-unquote. Uh, with Smith sidelined in that game, with Devonta Freeman ejected, it was Brian Hill who carried the load for Atlanta to close out that game. Can't read too much into it. Can't buy too much into any of these guys, again, because the Atlanta team is such a mess the only other potential injuries, and I'm calling them potential because uh, these guys were evaluated for concussions, but both eventually returned for San Francisco, were Matt Breda and Marquise Goodwin. 
as discussed with Dante Pettis earlier in the episode, this is an offense that's pretty tough to sort out. I think Breda is fine. You know, Breda and Coleman, uh, Tevin Coleman, that is, are the two pieces you can trust most from this offense, aside from George Kittle, because Shanahan likes to run the ball because he's good at scheming up the run. But Marquise Goodwin, I, I don't know. I just don't see how you can start him with any sort of confidence or, or any of the Niners receivers for that matter. I'm going to talk more about the impact of these injuries on the Week 8 waiver wire, but first let's take a break for the sponsor of the show, and that's Fantasy Draft, the only rake-free daily fantasy site in the business. They're running the largest rake-free contest out there each and every week, and all told, Fantasy Draft is regularly paying out millions of dollars in prizes. All of those winnings are rake-free. That's right, it's the only daily fantasy site with no management fees taken out of the prize pools, and this is not just a limited promotion. 100% of Fantasy Draft's contests are rake-free, and meanwhile, other DFS sites can continue to raise their rakes if they want. They can squeeze the prize pools and make it way harder for you to win in the long term. But at Fantasy Draft, the days of paying up to 16% of your entry fees to the house are over. Sign up at FantasyDraft.com today with promo code 4 for 4 the number 4, F-O-R, the number 4, and you'll get a free 7-day trial on your first $1,000 of rake-free entry fees. That's FantasyDraft.com with the promo code 4 for 4 don't miss your shot at millions of dollars in rake-free contests this season. Start playing at FantasyDraft.com today. On to the Week 8 waivers. There are only two teams on by for the upcoming slate, the Dallas Cowboys and the Baltimore Ravens. Now, we do have a lot of usable fantasy pieces on those teams, so if you're scrambling for additions to make up for you know the lack of Dak Prescott or Lamar Jackson at quarterback for uh, the loss of those running backs, Mark Ingram, Ezekiel Elliott, and there's some good receivers there on Dallas as well. A couple important tight ends in Mark Andrews and Jason Witten. Hopefully some of the following players will be able to help you out. As usual, when I talk about ownership percentages uh, in this segment, I'm going to be pulling that data from Yahoo Leagues. Uh, so if you play on ESPN or CBS or somewhere else, uh, the ownership percentages are probably going to be a little bit different. And I'm generally looking for players who are at least available in 50% of leagues or more. Uh, I will note some players who are owned in more spots. I mean, we'll, let's just start running back. Jamal Williams, 60% owned, but he should probably be owned in 100% of fantasy leagues at this point. Yes, Aaron Jones outscored him. Yes, Aaron Jones looks like the primary pass catcher there, which is good. But the Packers continue to work Jamal Williams in at a steady clip. He's getting enough usage to merit every week consideration as a flex play. Uh, so if Jamal Williams is out there in your league, you probably want him ahead of all the other running backs I'm about to mention. Maybe not Chase Edmonds, who's only 48% owned on Yahoo. What we saw with him and David Johnson, that dichotomy between, okay, the starter is more hurt than the team let on, or for whatever reason didn't get as many snaps as we might expect, and the backup comes in, it's a good situation for that backup with Edmonds. He puts up a huge game. That sort of consideration has to be applied to all of the key handcuffs out there. Darrell Henderson with the Rams, backing up Todd Gurley. Alexander Madison, 25% owned, backing up Dalvin Cook. Tony Pollard, only 16% owned, behind Zeke Elliott. Even some of the fringier guys, Deion Lewis behind Derrick Henry, Lewis is only 16% owned. Gus Edwards, 5% owned. Jordan Wilkins, only 1% owned. If you have bench space to play with, these handcuff guys are worth owning. Even though you might end up dropping them for you know some sort of team need in future weeks, the handcuff types that are out there have value. We saw what that value looks like with Chase Edmonds. So keep all these guys in mind when you're looking to make pickups. Now, if you're looking for running backs who might have more standalone value week to week, uh, Ronald Jones is available in 52% of Yahoo leagues. He's an up and down guy. I don't really want to own a Buccaneers running back, whether it's Jones or Dare or Peyton Barber. 
it's just not a an archetype of player that I'm interested in this three way this three way committee type of running back. But Ronald Jones has popped a couple of times this season. There's no reason to think he can't do it a few more times this season. And maybe it just happens to be on the week that you need a bye week replacement or an injury replacement. So you can consider adding him. A player I'm more interested in at the running back position is Mark Walton of the Dolphins. He's only 21% owned. He had 14 carries and one target in week seven. Kenyon Drake only totaled 10 such opportunities. Kalen Balaj had a measly three. So it looks like Mark Walton is... As close as we get to a bell cow with the Dolphins, and while we don't want to invest too much in the Dolphins' offense, this is an opportunity to get a potential lead back in an offense because he's being discounted by the bad team that surrounds him. Getting back to that line situation, Ty Johnson, 2% owned, J.D. McKissick, 1% owned. Those guys are both worth potentially adding because of the carry-on Johnson injury. Benny Snell is another player you can look at, only 5% owned. He's the primary backup to James Conner. While Jalen Samuels is hurt, and in a good game script, two weeks ago, before the bye, Snell, I think, had 14 carries or something like that. So the Steelers are not afraid to use him. They're not afraid to go committee style when the game calls for it. You're going to have to be careful in sorting out the matchups to try to figure out when that might be, though. It just so happens that week eight, the Steelers play Miami. So there's your good game script laid out on a silver platter. I wouldn't be excited about using Snell. I would much rather have James Conner or even, you know, the receiving weapons Uh, for the Steelers, but if you're truly, truly desperate, if your league is deep enough, Snell might be worth some consideration. Uh, Along the same lines, Brandon Bolden, I kind of brought him up jokingly last week, but I'm actually going to run him out in a league tonight on Monday Night Football. It's uh, the Going Deep League, or one of the Going Deep Leagues that Mike Clay runs, and I'm stretched pretty thin at running back with Nick Chubb on by this week. I had Rex Burkett, I had Damian Harris, just banking on that Patriots backfield to kind of deliver me some value. And of course, Burkhead just isn't healthy anymore. It seems like this is the story with him every season. At some point he gets hurt and he just disappears, even though he's got a questionable tag every friggin' week. But with Burkhead officially ruled out for tonight's game, I did it. I I added Brandon Bolden. I'm not excited about it, but you know, based upon the past couple weeks, we've seen him get used to reasonable fantasy outcomes. And I'm hoping that I get one more of those this week. The last running back I'll throw out is Wendell Smallwood, only 1% owned. He is the clear satellite back to own now that Chris Thompson is injured for Washington. Adrian Peterson still is getting the bulk of the work out of the backfield there. He had 20 carries in Week 7. Darius Geis will be back eventually, but in the short term, I think Smallwood in PPR formats is potentially worth looking at. Moving on to wide receiver, I'll start with a couple players who are owned in 40% or more of Yahoo Leagues. Philip Dorsett, we haven't seen him play yet on Monday Night Football, but with Josh Gordon out, with still no clear-cut solution at tight end, you know, Benjamin Watson is going to play this week in theory, but this is something to keep an eye on. Because I'm recording before the Monday Night game, I have to throw Dorsett out there as someone who, you know, if he hits tonight, he's going to be a popular waiver ad, and you might want to consider jumping on the train. We've seen him have value in that offense this season, even when Josh Gordon was healthy. So if Josh Gordon continues to miss time, Julian Edelman was questionable coming into this game. If he, you know, gets dinged up further, there is a lot of room for Philip Dorsett to take a larger piece of the New England passing game pie and run with it. Corey Davis is the other 40% plus guy. With Ryan Tannehill under center, you have to consider adding him. It looks like that passing game is going to wake up a little bit. And Davis, you know, was a hyped up prospect. He's a good player. His compatriot in that passing game, AJ Brown, also a good player, only 17% owned. I think those are 
probably three of the top ads this week, uh, depending upon what we see happen in Monday Night Football. Dorsett, Corey Davis, A.J. Brown. Digging a little deeper, if you want to react to the Will Fuller injury, Kiki QT is only 14% owned. Kenny Stills is only 12% owned. You want players catching passes from Deshaun Watson, and these are the guys until Will Fuller comes back. Deontay Johnson at 14% for the Steelers. He's coming off by. Mason Rudolph should be back under center for Pittsburgh. And while Rudolph was in there, Deontay Johnson seemed like the clear-cut number two wide receiver behind Juju Smith-Schuster. I'm obligated every week on this show to talk about the Dolphins wide receivers. Devontae Parker, only 13% owned. Preston Williams, only 12% owned. Parker caught a touchdown pass in Week 7. Williams, I think, saw eight targets. These guys are going to continue to see looks, and I kind of don't care who the quarterback is anymore, whether it's Fitzpatrick or Rosen. It seems like the QBs there are feeding these two guys the ball ahead of all the other receiving options in Miami. Fitzpatrick is probably the better bet for boom week potential with Parker and Williams, uh, whereas Rosen might be, he might be able to maintain more of a floor for Parker and Williams. Either way, I think the floor is pretty low for both of these guys considering the team that they play for, uh, but the upside is there too based upon the volume they're seeing. Anthony Miller is only 12% owned. He had seven targets in week six, nine targets in week seven despite Taylor Gabriel returning. The schedule for the Bears is pretty solid upcoming. They get the Chargers in week eight. They're at Philadelphia with a soft passing defense in week nine, then Detroit, then the Rams, then New York, then Detroit again. If Anthony Miller can keep up this target pace, he's going to be a nice addition down the stretch leading into the fantasy playoffs. One other ad I really like at wide receiver, Ted Ginn, only 7% owned on Yahoo. It's a bit of a desperation play, but his usage does figure to remain pretty steady if Alvin Kamara continues to miss time. Ginn has five and six targets over the past two weeks, and he's about to face Arizona. How much Ginn lines up against Patrick Peterson might dictate how well he does, but I think Ginn is worth a look if by weeks or injuries have you scrambling for a wide receiver this week. For the deep, deep, deep leaguers out there, Chris Conley, only 2% owned, had eight targets in Week 7 while Marquise Lee was out. Gardner Minshew hasn't favored Conley a ton, but it does seem like he's willing to spread the ball around to whoever the open guy is, whether that's DJ Chark, whether that's D.D. Westbrook, whether that's Chris Conley. Those seem to be the three kind of top receivers for the Jags, and with all the injuries that they've had at tight end, it seems like the wide receivers are are going to continue to do the bulk of the heavy lifting in that passing attack. Alex Erickson for the Bengals, only 2% owned. Zach Pascal for the Colts, only 1% owned. These guys might just be one-week wonders. I'm a little more interested in Pascal just because I like investing in the Colts more than I like investing in the Bengals at this point. I would probably just let somebody else chase Alex Erickson, kind of like we saw people chase Alan Lazard uh, heading into Week 7. But Pascal, I think, is a little bit more intriguing. We've been waiting for a clear-cut number 2 wide receiver to emerge for Jacoby Brissett. And I wanted it to be Deion Kane. A lot of people wanted it to be Paris Campbell. It's definitely not Chester Rogers, uh, but it looks like Zach Pascal might be that player. And if he can keep that up, he is definitely worth owning in deeper formats. Along the same lines, Jerron Brown and David Moore for the Seahawks are both 1% owned on Yahoo. Brown is seeing more targets. I think Moore has a little bit more boom potential, you know, upside for a big week, just based upon the larger average depth of target that he sees. And Seattle is facing some soft defenses coming up, Atlanta and Tampa Bay, in the next two weeks. I think the other factor that props up the value of these Seahawks wideouts is the fact that Will Disley got hurt. There was some speculation that maybe Luke Wilson can kind of slide right in and pick up where Will Disley left off, but Wilson only saw one target in Week 7. So I think it's probably a smarter move to invest in the wide receivers. Uh, Jerron Brown if you want a floor, David Moore if you want a ceiling. 
Moving on to tight end, I want to start with a couple guys who are coming off of bye and have generally been disappointments to this point in the season. O.J. Howard, Vance McDonald. Howard is 54% owned. That's, I mean, honestly too high considering the way he's played. McDonald, 49% owned. Same story, I guess. But I think there is potential for these guys to improve over the second half of their seasons. Considering the way that the third and fourth wide receivers haven't really panned out for the Buccaneers, O.J. Howard might start to see a little bit more usage here. The rub is that Cameron Brait is still there, and he's still going to soak up two to four targets per game, and that's that's really what's hampering Howard's value because Jameis Winston isn't really prone to locking in on one tight end. He's willing to spread the ball around between these guys. Uh, that hurts Howard, but at the same time, we've heard Bruce Arians talk about how he's planning to get Howard more involved, like take all that coach speak with a grain of salt, but because tight end is such a dumpster fire and because of the potency that this Buccaneers passing attack has as a whole a couple big games here from Howard could be on the way and maybe the bye week gave them a little bit more time to try to incorporate him into the offense maybe Arians having that week off and seeing how poorly his third receivers were doing is going to say to himself look I have to use my better playmakers and OJ Howard is one of those guys this is a really speculative argument and it it really is leaning on that assumption of rational coaching but I don't know it, it makes sense to me and that's why I don't think we can totally write off Howard just yet with that said, because he's still owned in so many leagues and because there are so many other viable options this week, it's actually a relatively good week to go out and speculate on tight end additions. You know, you don't have to throw a lot of fab at Howard. You might just want to throw just like a $1 or $0 bid to get him if you're interested in kind of chasing uh, that bounce back for him. Same thing with McDonald. Maybe with the bye week to get Mason Rudolph a little bit more up to speed with the offense, a little bit more relaxed, hopefully, coming off of that concussion injury. He might be able to turn around McDonald's season a little bit. With that said, I don't see a whole lot of difference between him and, say, someone like Dawson Knox, who's only 28% owned. I mean, Knox has five targets in each of his past two games. The Bills are using him. He might be just as valuable as McDonald going forward. Uh, I should throw out Chris Herndon as well, 29% owned. It's unclear exactly when he's going to be ready to play. Now that he isn't suspended anymore, he's, he's dealing with some nagging injuries, it seems like. But there's upside there. The schedule for... The Jets moving forward looks really good from a passing perspective. Herndon has to be at least in your thoughts if you're looking at a tight end to pick up. I mentioned Dallas Goddard as one of my booms of the week. Uh, he's only 13% owned and is the third receiver in that Philly offense. It's not a great offense right now uh, based upon what we saw from them against Dallas. But as long as Goddard is seeing the targets, he is a player that should probably be rostered just because there aren't that many good tight ends. I noted how Luke Wilson didn't get a whole lot of action in Week 7, but he's only 9% owned, and that could just be a one-game aberration. It's possible that the tight end will start to see more targets, uh, you know, sucking some away from Jerron Brown, away from David Moore, but I don't know. I, I'm more inclined to believe that Luke Wilson just isn't all that great a player. Like, the Seahawks have seen him before. The Seahawks have let him go. They only brought him back because of the injuries that they've suffered and the trades that they've made at the tight end position. So while Wilson maybe is worth a dart throw if you're truly desperate uh, and there aren't that many other options, I would probably look somewhere else. Perhaps even to Mike Kosecki, who is only 1% owned. Seven targets, four targets over the past two weeks, averaging 46 yards per game in those contests. The Dolphins have to throw. Mike Kosecki is their number one tight end in terms of pass catching. Uh, he's been relatively disappointing through his short career so far, but tight end is notoriously slow to develop in the NFL. Maybe Kosecki is starting to put it together, and based upon the volume that they're going to have in the passing game because their defense is so bad. Gasecki is worth some consideration as a streamer. 
Three more tight ends to throw at you. Foster Moreau, 0% owned. Like it or not, he's a consistent part of this Raiders offense. Two touchdowns over the past three games with at least three targets in every game over that span. The volume is bad. You can't count on touchdown production, but the tight end position is often one where you kind of just have to play touchdown bingo. You know, you, you hope that you get lucky, and Moreau seems to have that sort of role locked up in the Raiders' offense, especially because their wide receivers are not very good. Josh Hill, 0% owned with Jared Cook injured. Hill had a Foster Moreau-esque game in Week 7, caught all three of his targets for 43 yards plus a score, and Josh Hill gets to face Arizona's shoddy pass defense next week. Jonu Smith, only 0% owned. We know the talent is there because we've seen Jonu Smith step up in the wake of Delaney Walker injuries in the past. That's exactly what Smith did in Week 7, catching three of three targets for 64 yards, and he had a 57-yard reception back in Week 5. Next week, the Titans face the Buccaneers, who have allowed the second-most raw points to opposing tight ends. Those numbers are a little skewed based upon all of the excellent-to-good tight ends that they face this season, but even still, 4-for-4's adjusted fantasy points against metrics peg Tampa Bay as the third best matchup for tight ends to face. So Jonu Smith gives a little bit of hope at the tight end position off waivers this week. Moving on to quarterback, we have two potential pickups for two quarterback and super flex leagues. Matt Schaub taking over for Matt Ryan. As discussed earlier, he is 0% owned on Yahoo. He's getting Seattle this week. Matt Moore taking over for Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City. Faces Green Bay this week. Moore is only 1% owned. The teams have been really optimistic with both Mahomes' injury and Matt Ryan's injury. With that said, I tend to fade injury optimism. I think if you need a quarterback, if you had one of those guys on your team, you have to try to add more, add Schaub. Hopefully the number one starters can come back soon and make it so we don't we aren't subject to too much Matt Moore or Matt Schaub. But while these guys are starting, they deserve to be rostered in two quarterback formats. For one quarterback leagues, if you're looking for streamers, there are a ton of viable options as usual. Matthew Stafford, 57% owned, gets the Giants. With Carrion Johnson out, he should be throwing a little bit more, and that's a really nice matchup. Gardner Minshew is at the Jets this week, 53% owned. It doesn't seem like the ceiling is really there with Minshew, but the floor has been really, really solid. He's a safe bet for you know 15 to 20 points each and every week. Jacoby Brissett will be at home against Denver. He's only 47% owned, and it seems like when they are at home, Jacoby Brissett is just a, a good quarterback, a good fantasy quarterback. Jim Saunas touted him as such last week, and I'm inclined to agree, especially after what we saw him do in Week 7. You might try chasing Daniel Jones going on the road to Detroit this upcoming week, 35% owned, but I don't I don't know, man. I just haven't liked what I saw from Jones through the past few weeks. He had that one big fireworks display to start off his NFL career, and since then, we've seen him regress into being the the spotty rookie that we thought he would be entering the season. I would be much more excited about chasing Sam Darnold. He gets Jacksonville this week. He's only 32% owned, and the schedule beyond Week 8 is really good for Darnold. He's probably my top waiver addition if you're looking for a long-term solution, uh, him and Brissett. Now, we'll see how Darnold does against New England. That could be a case where, because the Patriots' defense is so good, if they do hold Sam Darnold down, that might mean that you get Darnold for an even cheaper cost, like less fab, less of a waiver priority than it would take to get someone like Brissett who's coming off a big game. Because all the players I've mentioned so far, quarterback, have been 30% owned or more, it's more likely you'll be looking at some other guys if your league is competitive. Um, Mitchell Trubisky, I actually kind of like this week going against the Chargers. He is at home. Don't get me wrong, Trubisky is not a very good player. I'm not excited about using him, but the Chargers defense has been pretty soft lately, and Trubisky does have that garbage time appeal 
and the ability to run himself, although we haven't seen him run quite as much as he did last season. That is a bit concerning. Uh, but anyway, I think he's a, he's a viable streamer this week if you're desperate. Uh, Derek Carr going on the road at Houston is only 20% owned. I don't love the Oakland offense either, but Houston's secondary is kind of a mess, and Carr has shown the ability to get his tight ends involved, uh, Darren Waller in particular. Maybe we'll see Zay Jones show up in that game. I think he's a reasonable guy to target. And then Teddy Bridgewater might be the safest of all of these low-owned options. He is at home. He is against Arizona, only 16% owned, super safe, super stable. Teddy Bridgewater is a really good plug-and-play if you just want a floor at quarterback this week. Mason Rudolph is mildly intriguing because he's playing against Miami, but I expect the Steelers to go pretty run-heavy to win that game. Mason Rudolph probably won't have to do a ton, so I'm not super excited about him as a streamer. I'd be much more inclined to go after Ryan Tannehill. Only 5% owned. He's at home. He's against Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay is a passing funnel. We know Tennessee wants to run the ball with Derrick Henry, but the Tampa Bay defense is not conducive to that. And so if Ryan Tannehill has to throw, if he should be throwing, that's a good matchup for him, especially if Jameis Winston coming off by can kind of get his head on straight and put up points on the other side of the ball, drive the tempo of the game, drive the game script for Tennessee to have to pass. If you're looking to stream defenses, the first team you need to look for are the Seattle Seahawks. They are at Atlanta, possibly facing Matt Schaub, but the Seahawks are 47% owned, might not be able to land them. A few other teams that are kind of in that 40% bucket, the Carolina Panthers at San Francisco, 44% owned. Pittsburgh versus Miami, 43% owned. I mean, they're the top streaming candidate this week for sure, even ahead of Seattle against Matt Schaub. Uh, The Philadelphia Eagles are at Buffalo, only 43% owned. I would like them more if they were at home instead of on the road. And then the Texans are at home against Oakland, 43% owned. I think if I'm ranking those high ownership defenses, I would go Pittsburgh, Seattle, Carolina, Houston, Philly. But if all those teams are gone and you're digging a little bit deeper, you could look to the Indianapolis Colts. They'll be at home against Joe Flacco and the Denver Broncos. The Colts are only 12% owned on Yahoo. You could also look to the Detroit Lions. They're going to be at home against Daniel Jones and the Giants. The Lions are 9% owned. And the last one I'll throw out there are the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at Tennessee, only 3% owned. The Bucs defense has been surprisingly decent this week. We know Tannehill is not great, despite what we just saw him do against the Chargers. The Bucs line up really well against that kind of run-first ethos of the Titans. So this could be a situation where Ryan Tannehill is made uncomfortable. The play callers for Tennessee are taken out of their comfort zones. And if that's the case, the Bucs could find their way to a couple turnovers if they convert one of those into points you're looking at a a relatively solid floor with them at the very least. And as usual, after we talk about all the players you could be adding, we got to talk about players you can drop. Uh, When I look at my rosters, some guys that I am planning to drop or players that I've already dropped, uh, Duke Williams for Buffalo. I picked him up leading into Buffalo's bye, kind of seeing that one game where he had a little mini breakout, four catches and a touchdown, something like that. He didn't really get used in week seven, and so I think that it's safe to cut bait on him. It was worth the speculation, I think, to give Duke Williams a try, but... That passing offense is John Brown, it's Cole Beasley, and it's Dawson Knox, and not a whole lot else. Uh, Deshaun Jackson, if you're still holding him for some reason, I think you can cut bait. I was holding on to one share on a deep bench team, uh, but yesterday after he was ruled out, I dropped him for Philip Dorsett. Just, again, kind of making a speculative ad on a player who I know is healthier right now with Dorsett. Uh, Similarly, uh, Auden Tate, I dropped midstream yesterday. I I waited for the morning games to kind of get going, saw that Tate wasn't doing a whole lot, and I dropped him to pick up A.J. Brown prior to the afternoon games on Sunday. If you're still holding Tate, I think you can drop him. 
It just doesn't seem like you want to be attached to the Bengals offense if you can help it. More on that in a minute. Chris Thompson, not healthy. I think you can drop him. I cut him in one of my leagues yesterday to add the Steelers defense, uh, just kind of looking ahead to next week when the Steelers play Miami. And then Darius Slayton, I'm more lukewarm on this drop. I think you can hold Slayton if you want, but we have to assume that Sterling Shepard is going to be back eventually. We have to assume that Evan Ingram is going to be a little bit more involved going forward. And if that's the case with Saquon Barkley also healthy now, Slayton's probably on the outside looking in. He has some boom-bust potential, but I just don't think he's going to see enough targets to be usable week to week. I thought he had a chance against Arizona, but it just didn't play out that way. And I think based upon the outcome, we can look to cut bait on Slayton. Some other somewhat prominent players I think are droppable. Maybe not you know from my own teams, but just in general. Uh, Damian Williams, that... Seems to be LaShawn McCoy's backfield going forward. Williams might be usable if you see like a shootout potential game where the Chiefs might need to be throwing to the running back a little bit more often. But it's not like LaShawn McCoy can't do that stuff. And now that Mahomes is hurt, I am really wary of keeping anybody who's at all fringe from that offense on my roster. So I think Damian Williams can go. Uh, Kenyon Drake, this is kind of tied to the call earlier to pick up Mark Walton. Kenyon Drake is still seeing more targets than Mark Walton, or at least he did this past week. But it seems like Walton is the guy they're going to give the most touches to going forward, and I'm okay with that. I didn't really want to be invested in a Miami running back in the first place, uh, so hopefully you listeners are starting to see that as well. Uh, and if you do, if you were holding out hope for Kenyon Drake, now might be time to to let it go. Malcolm Brown is also cuttable in my mind. Uh, again, most because he's not healthy. And because Darrell Henderson has looked good as the you know third running back in that rotation. Going back to the Buffalo Bills, I think we have to at least be on alert to potentially drop Frank Gore and or Devin Singletary. I think it's probably okay to hold one or both of these guys in a lot of cases, especially if you have the bench depth to play with. But I, I don't know, like if these guys are splitting time, it's going to be really tough to figure out which ones are usable week to week. This reminds me a lot of the situation in Tampa Bay with Peyton Barber and Ronald Jones, that they're just going to cut so much into their value, you know, Gore and Singletary, that neither one is really going to be fantasy viable going forward. Now, if I had to pick one to kind of plant my flag on, it would be Singletary because he is the younger, younger guy, because he is the future of that team. Frank Gore is not, uh, but Gore right now is the guy who's getting more work. So it's it's kind of a nebulous situation. I think it's fine to hold them both. But if one of those types of players that I talked about at the top of the show, one of those you know unexpected drops is out there, some player who should not have been dropped is now available, and you're looking for a player to cut, I think you can consider letting Frank Gore go, letting Devin Singletary go. It's within the realm of possibility for me. And along similar lines, we have to be on watch for Joe Mixon at this point. Only 10 carries in Week 7, only 2 yards. Giovanni Bernard is getting a lot of work in that timeshare. I want Joe Mixon to be good. I drafted him in a couple of spots this season. I, I assume that because he did well on a poor team last year, he'd be able to do well on a poor team this year. But it seems like all of the new injuries that they've seen, especially along the offensive line, have really sapped Mixon's value. I'm not going to cut him just yet, but I wouldn't blame you for doing so. He's got the Rams in Week 8, then a bye, then Baltimore in Week 10. I don't know if he's startable in either of those two games. Once week 11 rolls around, he gets Oakland, and then week 12, Pittsburgh, week 13, New York, the Jets. Maybe there's more reason to consider Mixon in those matchups, but for the short term, he's not really doing it for me. And if I'm worried, if I'm not willing to start him now, like, why am I holding him? That's that's the question I'm asking myself. The answer is that we hold him because the talent is there, right? And, and that does matter, 
But at some point, enough is enough, and we have to maybe potentially fade the entire Bengals offense. Uh, rattling off some wide receivers you could cut. Uh, Tyrell Williams, Will Fuller, both hurt. I don't really think it's worth holding those types of players, uh, the, you know, the boom-bust types who have you know soft tissue injuries. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, but the Chiefs tertiary receivers, they can go along the same lines. The Falcons tertiary receivers, uh, potentially cuttable. The Niners receivers, as discussed earlier. And on that note, Jimmy Garoppolo, he's only topped 15 standard fantasy points once all season, and that was against the lowly Bengals. I don't think Garoppolo is worth holding. The San Francisco offense is just not one that's prolific enough in the passing game to merit him being you know, a hold, uh, especially in one quarterback formats. Other quarterbacks you can cut, Daniel Jones, Baker Mayfield, and at tight end, I think you can let Delaney Walker go, uh, depending upon you know the reports of his injury. But the fact that he entered that game questionable, got hurt early and couldn't return, makes me worry about him long term. Uh, Jared Cook, kind of same thing. Although I do think there's more upside with Cook kind of long-term because he was ruled out ahead of time. They, they wanted to try to get him healthy. I think that there's more potential for Cook to come back uh, and be a contributor than Walker, at least in the short term. Uh, Walker could be fine, don't get me wrong, but I think while he's hurt, while Jared Cook is hurt, those guys are cuttable because you don't really want to be carrying extra tight ends on your bench, especially guys who aren't, good, who aren't even like possibly going to play, the guys who are hurt like these two. Now to wrap things up, I usually like to ask the guests who their most valuable in a vacuum players are off waivers. And I think of the readily available guys out there, the top three for me this week are A.J. Brown and Devonta Parker and Mark Walton. But before you go to add A.J. Brown, you should definitely look to see if Corey Davis is available. Uh, there, there's some argument to be made that Davis should be owned over Brown just because he's a little bit more dialed in, you know, as the veteran wide receiver on that team, quote unquote veteran. Uh, but I think both of them are worth ads, uh, Parker and Walton on the Dolphins, just because the usage seems to be there and we got to chase that opportunity. Uh, if you need a quarterback, as I mentioned before, I think it's Sam Darnold kind of above all else, but those are my top guys. If you're just looking for overall value going forward. With that all said, the show's over. Thank you for putting up with me talking to myself for this podcast. I hope it didn't come off as too weird without the guest. I, th- I think I did okay. There, Like I said, there will be guests going forward. This is not the status quo. It's just the way it had to be coming out of week seven. John and Anthony will be back later this week uh, with another podcast. Be sure to tune into that. Uh, if you're looking to get a 444 subscription, use the promo code TMAP, T-M-A-P, as in the most accurate podcast, and you'll get 25% off. Just go to 444.com, go up to the top right corner of the page, click that Why Join or Subscribe button, and use that promo code. You'll get 25% off whichever subscription package you decide to go with. Uh, We have stuff for DFS, Seasonal, whatever suits your fancy. It's all there, and it's all great content. We have awesome writers, awesome resources and tools on the back end, you know, just statistical analysis that you won't find anywhere else at 444. Uh, It's really, you know, worth the, the price of admission if you're willing to get that sub, and that price of admission is at a discount if you use our promo code TMAP. Otherwise, I will be back again next week to recap week eight, look ahead to week nine. Until then, thank you for listening to the Most Accurate Podcast.